John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the words of the Lord. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This uh, they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Sin no more. Those are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. You know, there's nothing like a beautiful piece of artwork. There's nothing like it. Artwork is... Uh, man, to be to be looked upon, to be gazed upon. There's nothing like a beautiful piece of artwork. I think of paintings. If you have, if we have you, um, think of a painting. Uh, how an artist can start with a blank canvas and create just such a beautiful, colorful work of art. Um, the Sistine Chapel. Something I think about. Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel ceiling in the 16th century. He painted this elaborate painting, and what you see is on the top of the ceiling, uh, there are different nine different scenes from the book of Genesis. He paints, and, and as the story goes in history, Michelangelo would read the Old Testament over and over again as he was painting uh, the Sistine Chapel. He's very detailed, as there's some over 343 figures painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It's beautiful. Uh, the story is told how Michelangelo would have to build his own scaffolding out of wood. And he would mount that wooden scaffolding. And as he's standing on the top of the scaffolding, imagine this, his head pointed upward for hours upon hours, painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. This was a bad dude. And, and not only was he a painter, he was actually a sculptor. And, and that's, what, that's what he did for a living. But get this, uh, he, he, he painted this. It took him four years to get this ceiling done. A beautiful piece of art. He was summoned by the Pope of their day uh, to come into the chapel and, and paint this piece of artwork. The Pope summoned Michelangelo and get this, he submitted to authority and said, yes, I, I, I will paint this beautiful picture for you on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And when we come to our text this morning, what we will see is we will see God 
pulling us in to be His Michelangelo's. God asking us to submit to His authority, the ultimate authority, to paint a beautiful picture. Get this, not of a photo, but of grace. But of grace. That's what we'll see this morning. But before we go to work, let's pray. Father, thank You for who You are. God, we pray that you would be in our midst. Sweet Holy Spirit, would you do work on us this morning? Would you draw us into who you are? Would you reveal, uh, Father, uh, take the, 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 the covers off our eyes and open our ears to hear you this morning? Would you reveal the beauty of the gospel to us? And maybe it's for a second time or over and over again, but maybe it's for the first time that you revealed the gospel to us. Would you do that, God? May we embrace the sweet gospel of Jesus, your beautiful artwork of grace. I pray that you would reveal to us. Father, allow me to decrease that you may increase here. We need a word from you, Jesus. So would you speak to us? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. First things first, you may notice a red flag in your, in your Bible, like my Bible has. Um, and basically, let me give you the basics. Um, scholars believe that this text wasn't written by John, um, but they, there is an overwhelming consensus that this was an eyewitness account. And so that's why there's plenty for us to learn this morning. This is uh, the real deal. Let me just give you a broad sweep of the Gospel of John. John's point in the Gospel uh, is that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's his point. That we may believe and that we may have life in his name. It says that at the end of John chapter 20. It says, here's my point. That you would believe. That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That you would have life in His name. Jesus makes this case over and over again. He says things like, I am the bread uh, of life. He says things like, I'm the door, the gate. I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Over and over again, Jesus is saying, get this, newsflash, I am supreme. And if you hear nothing else I say this morning, you've got to hear that Jesus is supreme. He's number one. And that's the big picture of John. We also see Jesus as Jesus is becoming extremely famous. And if you know anything about music, you know about Michael Jackson, right? You know how Michael Jackson would travel to places, he would do these concerts, and people would be going nuts over Michael Jackson. I mean, people would be crying and snotting, falling out. You know what I mean? Uh, they got these fa- fanning themselves. Um, they're going nuts. The crowds are going crazy over Michael Jackson. And really, this is what happens throughout the Gospels with Jesus. He's drawing a crowd. He's becoming famous. And he's got some folks who don't like to see that happening. That's one of the things that we'll see in our text um, it's early in the morning and Jesus is teaching a large group of people. 
Jesus is teaching a large group, and while he's teaching, his rivals, the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman before him, and the point of them bringing this woman before him is to trap Jesus, to get him trapped so they can bring charges against him because he's becoming too famous. And so in their attempt to trap Jesus, they asked Jesus a question. They said, Jesus, we have caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now, Jesus, the law of Moses says, as if Jesus didn't already know what the law of Moses says, Jesus, the law of Moses says that this woman deserves death. But Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? The law of Moses says this woman deserves death. But Jesus, what do you say to this? See, people, uh, people that don't have the gospel as their nucleus will always be more concerned with rules rather than loving people. People that don't have the gospel as their center, as the core, will always be more concerned with obeying rules rather than loving people. Here are the religious experts. Uh, They know the Pentateuch. They know the first five books of the Bible like the back of their hands. They got it. Uh, They they go to church. They go to, to the temple. They, they, they know everything, yet their goal is to entrap Jesus because he's pulling too much attention away from them. He, he's gained a following and they're upset because they're the ones who, who should be looked to for the teaching and, and they're not being looked to like Jesus is. Yet they're wise because this is a difficult question for Jesus to answer. If Jesus says, don't stone her, the assertion is that Jesus is trumping the law. He's avoiding the law, throwing the law to the side. And, of course, Jesus doesn't want to do that. Um, But if he says, kill her, maybe they could get Jesus' following to pull away from them. If he says, kill her, maybe they could get people to really believe that he is not the friend of sinners that he claims to be. So they asked Jesus this question. Jesus, what do you say? See, the indication here is you have to see their hearts. What we see here from the scribes and Pharisees, we see the condition of their hearts. When you have a person that's changed by the Spirit of the living God, you begin to even view differently the colossal failures of others. If a person is changed by the Spirit of the living God, the the mess-ups of others, they look at differently. They don't even view them the same. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they assume that they're right by God because they go to church. They assume that they're right by God because they, 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 they're, they're the best in Bible drill. That they can find all of the scriptures at the right time. And they assume that they're right by God. And it reveals in a beautiful way the condition of their hearts. It reveals who they really are. Let me just give you a glimpse of, of this. Romans 12.10 says this. Love one another with brotherly affection. Romans 15.7 says this, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And I love this one. This is, uh, I just threw this in there just, just for kicks. 2 Corinthians 13.12 Greet one another with a holy kiss. Galatians 5.13 
through love serve one another. Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 says this, encourage one another. James 4.11 says this, do not speak evil against one another. The overwhelming theme in Scripture and even Jesus' life is that your faith is not just for you. You are not saved for yourself, but you are saved for others. You've been marked, you've been redeemed, not just for yourself, but for others. See, people who have been saved and redeemed by the Spirit of the living God, they're not just obsessed with obeying rules. One of the marks of a person who has been changed by God, is that they love other people. They're caring for other people. Think we see this in the scribes and the Pharisees? No. It's not something that we see in them. At any cost, the scribes and the Pharisees are out for their own gain. Ever been to a kid's sports game? Um... You ever been to you know, a baseball game or a little league or uh, a football game or uh, maybe a soccer game, whatever it may be, basketball? Um, and, you know, honestly, the kids do more falling than playing. But um, if you've ever been to one of those games, uh, maybe you've seen these parents that go crazy, right? These irate parents, and maybe you've been one of them. <laughs> Just Maybe. Um, but these parents, they, they go crazy um, because they think these volunteer refs aren't following the rules. I mean, come on, you've got, you got to be kidding me. So here you have these parents um, yelling at other parents. Uh, they're, they're going crazy as if their kid is in the World Series or, or, the, the, uh, or in the Super Bowl or something like that. Uh, they're going crazy, yelling at other parents, yelling at other kids on the opposite team. I mean, yelling at their own kid at times. And what they're doing is they're trying to, to get people to follow what they see to be the rules, right? And they're more concerned with the rules being followed than they are even of the model that they should set even before their own family and their kids, right? They're, they're concerned with following the rules. Volunteer riffs. <laughs> they're concerned with the rules being followed. That's the scribes and the Pharisees. At any cost, at any expense, even at the expense of this woman who's in sin, entrenched in sin, at any cost, they, they, they want to keep the rules. What's your life story going to be? Is your life story one marked by Jesus or is your life story one marked by being a rule keeper? Are you one who's known for loving people or are you one who's known for keeping the rules? You can always see the difference between somebody who really cares for and loves people and somebody who wants to keep the rules. You can always see the difference. I went to a Southern Baptist Seminary. And uh, you want to see some rule keepers. <laughs> Woo! My goodness. Um, which is completely different than the Presbyterian world. You know what I'm saying? Like, Presbyterians are like, all right, what are we drinking tonight? You know? 
Southern Baptists are like, don't you ever look at a bottle of alcohol. Um, rules. Rules, man. So Jesus is confronted by the scribes and Pharisees. And I love this about Jesus, how calm, cool, and collected that Jesus is. They, they assume that they've got Jesus now. They just know this in their minds, I'm sure. And there's probably a crowd of people waiting to hear Jesus' response. And I imagine this woman who's been caught in sin. I imagine how she knows she was wrong. But she's waiting to hear the verdict. She's probably broken. She probably has tears in her eyes. Her hair is all over the place because of the crowd and pulling on her. And, and I, I just imagine how broken she would have been. Waiting to hear how her story would end. She's probably weeping. And they could care less about what this woman is going through. And you can just see the, the tension in this text as you read it. You can just feel the tension. You can cut it with a knife. On one end, you got the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite, uh, combating against Jesus. And you got this huge crowd of people waiting for this response. And you got this woman, on the other hand, that just in the middle of all of the turmoil, tension in the text. But up until this point, Jesus has said nothing. He hasn't even opened his mouth. Do you see the humility of Jesus here? How humble Jesus is. He's bearing with these religious folks who, have, who are coming against him. And Jesus bends down. He, he writes something in the dirt with his finger. And there's been a lot of speculation about what did Jesus actually write. And um, some people say that Jesus is writing the sins of these religious elite in the dirt. And some people say that Jesus is actually writing laws from the Pentateuch, from uh, the first five books of the Bible. He's writing those laws for the religious elite. We don't know what Jesus wrote, but what we do know is Jesus is calm, cool, and collected. We don't know what he wrote. He's humble. And he, he bears with them. But they continue to ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you say about this woman? What, what do you say? Then Jesus, for the first time in the exchange, Jesus opens his mouth. And what comes out is incredibly beautiful. He says something extremely profound. Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Here's the thing. This rarely happens This rarely happens in antiquity because the rules for bringing a woman caught in adultery, um, they're they're extremely strict. So this is not something you could hear through the grapevine. You actually had to witness the act of adultery with your own eyes. Otherwise, you couldn't bring somebody up on charges. There had to be two, at least two witnesses who actually witnessed the act of adultery. Of adultery. I mean, this is some serious stuff. So it rarely happens. So, in the minds of the scribes and Pharisees, they're thinking to themselves, We know this is a special case. We've got them now. We've got them. We've got them. But the thing is, oftentimes we hear this and we assume that Jesus 
is speaking of perfection. He's speaking of a sinless person, right? But that's not what Jesus is saying. And I love Tim Keller's commentary on this. Jesus is not saying the person that's perfect, the person that's sinless, cast the first stone. That's not what Jesus is saying. Actually, Jesus is referring to the law. He's he's pointing them back to what they care about, what they think they care about so dearly. See, in the law, in Deuteronomy, what what, what Jesus knows of is the law tells us that if you have to have two witnesses, and not only do you have to have two witnesses, but you cannot bring a person upon adultery charges if you've been involved in adultery yourself. Right? So Jesus knows this. You can't charge somebody with something that you've been involved in yourself. And not only this, Jesus says, he, he tells them, the person that's without sin, you cast the first stone. The reason why is because Jesus knows that there's no man there. Anybody ever thought about that? Where's the brother? Like, how did he get away? How, how, did, how did he get away? And so, they're charging this woman. There's no man in sight. He probably ran. Probably blamed somebody else. There's no man in sight, and they're bringing this woman, and Jesus, in the law, we, we, Jesus knows this, that in the law, there's no partiality. If you're bringing one, you have to bring both, and the, the law is fair, and it's just. Jesus is, uh, knows that he serves a just God. And so when he says to them, when Jesus says to them, he that is without sin You cast the first stone. You throw the first stone at this woman. What Jesus is really saying is, I know that some of you have been involved in adultery yourselves. He's saying, I know that some of you, maybe it's been in your past, maybe it's been a long time ago, or even recently, I know that some of you have been involved in adultery yourselves, and you have no right to accuse this woman. You don't have the right. Here's, here's what I want you to know. The law of God was never meant to oppress you, but to point you and I to Jesus. The law of God was never meant to oppress you, but to point you and I to Jesus. See, Jesus is telling them, I know your story. I know some of you were just as messed up. And not only that, but you did not bring the man. So according to the law, you don't have the right to accuse this woman. So according to the law that you brought to me, you throw the first stone at her. You be guilty of killing this woman. And what do they do? They drop their stones. And they walk away. Get this. The oldest ones walk away first. They're like, oh, my name is Wes, and I ain't in this mess. <laughs> he, he's got us. And they walk away first. See, Jesus used the law to show them, you're just as messed up. You're, you're in just as much trouble. See, the law reveals our open wounds, and it lets us know how the only medication for those open wounds is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The law points us in the direction of Jesus. It reveals how broken we really are. The law is not meant to oppress us, but the law is meant to say, we need Jesus 
to point us to a holy and righteous God. The scribes and the Pharisees, they've been heaping weights upon everybody themselves. This woman and even the crowds of people that they've been teaching, they're heaping these weights of rules. And Jesus says, my gospel is not a weight of rules, it's freedom. It's freedom. Um, I'm not the best driver, but most of Memphians aren't the best drivers either. Uh, so I fit right in here. Um, but uh, if, if you know anything about driving in the city of Memphis, imagine taking away stop signs. Imagine taking away uh, the signal lights. Imagine taking away speed limits. Huh? Huh? And some of y'all are like, oh, that's where I grew up. You know, some of y'all grew up in the country. It's like, oh, that'd be like home. But imagine in the city of Memphis taking away all those rules and regulations. It would be chaos, right? It would be chaos. Those rules, those regulations, they're, they're meant to govern us and they're for our own good. That's what the law of God is like. It's not a set of rules that ought to burden us that we may not move, but the law of God is to free us. It's for our own good. It's for our own good. The law of God is to point us to our unquenchable need apart from Jesus Christ. It's to show us how much we need Him. Let me give you the last thing. Lastly, Jesus gives us acceptance then change, and not our change for His acceptance. Jesus gives us acceptance, then change. See, the woman's accusers take off. And the Bible says Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before Him. And let me just stop there. I think this is so beautiful. The woman is left alone with Jesus. Church, oh, that we would get alone with Jesus. Many of us go to church and we, we're in community. We have people to speak into our lives, but we're afraid to get alone with Jesus. Oh, that we would get alone with Him. That we would be saturated in His presence. That we would know Him deeply. Some of us need to get alone with Jesus. We've been with our friends. We've been with our church. We've been in work. All of these things, good things. Get alone with Jesus, church. Be with Him. Know Him. Learn Him deeply. Jesus said to this woman, Woman, where are they? Has anyone condemned you, woman? The woman said to Jesus, No one has, Lord. And Jesus then said to her, Look at verse 11 with me. Look at this with me. Jesus said to this woman, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let me just say, this, this is the reason why many people have been hurt deeply by the church. Because they, they haven't done what Jesus does here. Haven't learned that. Many people have been hurt by the church because they're condemned. They come to church and they're, they're looking for um, some restoration and some healing and all they get is condemnation. And many people have been thrown to the side by the church and pushed away, especially the church in Memphis, Tennessee. 
What if God would want to create and cultivate and build a church that is not gung-ho on condemnation, but a church that's gung-ho on grace? And that's what's wrong with the church. We're so used to doing church rather than being the church. And people are being pushed away. They feel belittled. They feel thrown away because of the mess that they've entangled themselves in. And all they get from us, the church folk, the the supposedly Jesus-loving folk, is condemnation. That's why people are pushed away from the church. I love this, though, where we are in this passage, because Jesus is full of grace and truth all in one. For the scribes and the Pharisees, it's either one or the other. Either you give her grace and we condemn you, or you condemn her and we show people that you are not the friend of sinners that you claim to be. It's one or the other, but Jesus says, no, it's not one or the other. It's both and. And so what's so beautiful about this passage is I know what many of you are thinking. We always talk about grace. We always, what about the standard? uh, 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 What about the standard that that, that the Bible holds? And what I'll tell you is look at Jesus' response. It is full of grace and truth. Jesus says to this woman, sin, you were wrong. Go and sin no more. You were wrong. He says, your adultery that you were caught in, you were wrong. Uh, You you turned your back on God. You were rebelling against God. And I'll pause right here and say, I I would dare to say there's some adulterers against the holy God in this place right now. There's some folks who, who who have turned their backs on God. Who have been rebelling against God. And that's what this woman did when she, when she got caught in adultery. She was rebelling against God. And I would dare to say, before you turn your nose up at this woman, I would dare to say, look at your own life and I bet there's some rebellion against God there. What Jesus does is beautiful. He says, woman, you don't have to work for your acceptance. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You are guilty, yes, but you are accepted. That blessed my soul because I know myself. If y'all don't know me, I know myself. But Jesus says, Chris, yes, you are condemned. Yes, you are guilty, but you are loved and accepted. My goodness, Do you know that that's the gospel of Jesus? He says, yes, you are condemned. You're guilty, but I love you anyway. You don't have to work for my acceptance. Even if you tried, it wouldn't be good enough. But you're accepted. You're you're loved. Even though you're guilty. See, the reason Jesus can say you're guilty, but I don't condemn you, is because he's saying, I will be condemned for you. See that? He's saying, I accept you even in your guilt. And the reason why I can do that is because I'll be condemned for you. I'll be the one condemned for you. And that's what sets Christianity apart. Is that we're guilty and nothing can free us from that guilt from that shame, from that burden of sin. Yes, we, we have a guilty verdict upon us. 
But Jesus has taken our guilt upon Himself. He has freed us and we no longer are bound. We are no longer condemned if we believe in Him. That's the thing that sets Christianity apart. Every other major religion says you are guilty or you are free completely. But Jesus says you are both guilty, yet you are condemned, but both in the same breath you are free. You are free from that sin because I am condemned for you. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not a work of your own, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's what Paul is saying. If you know Jesus, you didn't do it by yourself. And if you don't know Jesus, the way you get to know Him is not in your works. It's by believing in Jesus. It's by believing in what Jesus did on your behalf. Um, I have a lot of friends um, who are in fraternities and sororities. And, you know, I've never been a guy into the fraternities and, so, and the sorority thing. And, you know, I, I just think they're kind of legal gangs. That's what I think. They throw up signs, right? Um, they have colors, right? They have letters that only they can wear, right? I mean, that's what I think about them. Um, but anyway, I, I have all these friends who are in fraternities and sororities. And get this. I just remember hearing their stories and seeing them go through these processes to be accepted. And if you know anything about fraternities and sororities, I mean, I don't need to tell you guys, but it's crazy how black fraternities and sororities are way different than white fraternities and sororities. But here's what they have in common is that you got to do something to be accepted, right? So, so um, maybe it's being someplace at the right time or doing all the things that they say or wearing the right thing. Get this, you're working for that acceptance, right? And it blows my mind what 18 to 20 year olds will do for acceptance. To be accepted. And what Jesus says is, woman, yes, you are condemned through your adultery, but you're, you're already accepted by belief in me. Woo! You don't have to work for this acceptance. My fraternity accepts you just as you are. Jesus says, it's beautiful. Jesus says, what it takes is trust and faith in me. What it takes is trust in the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Believe in that today. Because that's the only thing that will give you life. That's the only thing that could give you hope. Not your works. Jesus doesn't say, change, then I'll accept you. Jesus says, as messed up as you are, you have my acceptance. Through belief in me, Belief in His death, His burial and resurrection. Belief in the reality that He was condemned on my behalf and on your behalf. That He took the penalty for sin. That He stood in your place and in my place. That He satisfied the wrath of God. And if we believe in Him, Jesus, in a miraculous way that we can't quite explain, He has exchanged our sin and our guilt, our shame, for His righteousness. That's the gospel. 
Yes, you don't deserve it. Yes, you're not worthy, but He accepts you anyway. And Jesus says, because I have accepted you, because I was condemned on your behalf, here's what I'm challenging you to do to display my beautiful artwork of grace to others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your beautiful artwork of grace. I pray that we wouldn't forget this, how, how you accepted us even though we were condemned. And Father, I pray that we would extend this same grace freely with others, to others, God. Lord God, thank you that you are a God of truth, yet grace. Jesus displayed this with this woman. And I pray that we would learn that component, Father. That we would be a church filled with truth and grace. And that we would give it away to this city. We would give it away over and over again. We would give it away to our spouses. That we would give it away to our children. That we would give it away to our students. We would give it away to our neighbors. That we would give away your truth combined with your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.